Mark's Gospel, chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, why don't you turn there with me? Uh, 120 miles an hour. I think that's the quickest I've ever traveled on land. I wasn't driving. And anyway, it was before I was a Christian anyway. Uh, I was on the back of my, uh, one of my relative's motorbikes. Uh, and we went from, don't try this at home, should be the disclaimer that's thrown out at this point, by the way. Uh, we went from uh, my hometown of Uphall in West Lothian uh, out to a place called Three Mile Town. So named because it's pretty much three miles from anywhere. I just find it funny. Um, it must have been up all night thinking about that name, you know. Um, and, and I'm not kidding you. Normally, you know, Three Mile Town, okay, you know, should take you about three or four or five minutes in one of these back roads. Um, I think it took about 30 seconds. And uh, I was quite surprised I had hands left by the end of it because I was holding on. Uh, now, now, when you're going that quickly along the ground, you pass certain landmarks that, you can, that are quite familiar to you. But obviously, it's not like you're walking along. It's not like you get to stop and pause and ponder something wonderful that's part of the countryside. No, everything kind of rushes by you in a, in a bit of a haze. And uh, I think Mark 1 is quite like that. Actually, Mark's gospel is a bit like that. And we're going to study this uh, as part of Equip. So students and young people, you're going to see this as we study this in the year uh, at our Equip Bible studies. Uh, but Mark 1 is very, very quick. Uh, but we shouldn't allow these things just to rush on by. We're going to take time just to try and put the brakes on a little bit as we go through Mark 1 tonight uh, so that we can try and see what Mark wants us to see in answer to the question, who is Jesus? Uh, who is Jesus? Have you ever considered that question yourself? Uh, maybe you are a, a visitor to church. Maybe you're not used to coming to church and uh, you've maybe come a couple of times or this might be your first time. You're very welcome. We're glad you're here. This is our this is our practice to take a book of the Bible and a passage of the Bible and spend time on a Sunday like this uh, poring over it, uh, drinking deeply from the text itself. Uh, have you considered that question, who is Jesus? Uh, there are lots of people that have different answers to that question. Oh, some say he's a wonderful moral teacher. Uh, some say he's obviously a very compassionate man and uh, did a lot for humanity and has had quite an impact on society. Others just treat him as, really, as someone who suffered an early form or an unrecognized form, if you like, of delusions of grandeur. Uh, he was insane in some ways. There are lots of different ways that people answer the question, who is Jesus? And I wonder what your answer is. Uh, I suppose backing up a little bit from that before we start, I should ask, do you realize that you really have to answer that question? Uh, gone are the days when you can say, well, I don't even think that this man Jesus existed. You know, we have Roman and Jewish historical documents, documents which testify to the very presence of Jesus Christ on this earth 2,000 years ago. The Bible, as we've already seen from our World Alive, exhi uh, World Alive? World Alive exhibition, is uh, very, very reliable in terms of its historicity. Uh, so we're not left with the option, really, of saying Jesus did or did not exist. He did. The question that must be answered then is, is he who, who he says he is? C.S. Lewis. Most people know who C.S. Lewis is, right? Uh, the guy who, he, he wrote many different books uh, of various kinds. He's written some deep theology books and lectures. He's written Chronicles of Narnia. 
uh, for example, uh, he said this. Uh, he, I mean, he was very, very concerned that lots of people had lots of different answers to the question, who is Jesus? Uh, it disturbed him, of course, that people would consider him as insane or suffering delusions of grandeur. But actually, as you read through his writings, it's probably truer to say that C.S. Lewis had far more of a problem with the kind of people who threw little kind of polite laurels and accolades at Jesus saying, wasn't he a wonderful moral teacher? Wow, our world is all the better for having Jesus here. But stopping short of saying that he is who he says he is, the son of God, uh, come to take away our sin. C.S. Lewis says, Anything apart from that is is not possible to consider. He could not be a good man or a moral man, a good religious teacher, nor a wise or trustworthy leader. Why? Because of one very important matter. He, Jesus Christ, claimed to be God. And at the point where he claimed to be God, he eliminated himself from all of those categories because good people, wise people, sensible people don't think they're God and don't want you to think they're God. To show you why people like C.S. Lewis and myself and lots of other people in this room believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, let's read Mark 1 together. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came. Baptizing in the desert region. And preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the, river, in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt round his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee 
in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Amen. This is God's word. Well, you can see where Christians get the idea that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, Mark tells us in verse 1, in bold italics and caps locks and and underlined, he is just yelling at us. This is what this whole book is about. And I would encourage you to read through the Gospel of Mark, uh, even as we are only dealing with a small section of it tonight. The beginning, verse 1 says, of the Gospel, that means good news, about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And launches then straight into, having just said that one little sentence of telling us of how the Old Testament, uh, written hundreds of years even before Christ came, uh, told us about something that would happen, two things that would happen. One, there would be a Messiah coming, a king, an anointed king sent by God, but before him would come a forerunner who would look kind of like and sound kind of like one of the older prophets, Elijah. And that's exactly what you've got in verses uh, 2 to 8 with John uh, the Baptist. He's, he's kind of like an MC, if you like. Uh, I'm sure you saw the Olympics, uh, and particularly the opening ceremony. I don't know how many sermon illustrations I've got there out of the opening ceremony, but there must be about 10 by now. Uh, the Olympics. Uh, you, you saw that everybody who was of importance, was uh, their arrival was announced. Now, setting aside the whole James Bond entrance, okay, the Queen was introduced uh, by uh, the MCs, those who were articulating and proclaiming the announcement of someone significant. So there was the IOC boss, Jacques Rogan. The Queen was introduced, uh, even in two languages. And it's kind of like what John the Baptist was doing. He's like a, a forerunner, an MC who is who is declaring to everyone, uh, get ready, someone important is coming. Uh, And he is this voice, if you like, and it quotes Isaiah chapter 40. He is this voice of one crying in the desert. Uh, And the amazing thing, when you look back to Isaiah chapter 40, uh, and you see written in this text here, in verse 3, who is it that the voice is preparing the way for? Well, you see, a voice of one calling in the desert, verse 3, prepare the way for who? The Lord. The Lord. Uh, God Almighty. Uh, The Lord is the one that John is preparing for. And so at the beginning of Mark, we have John the Baptist's message. Someone special is coming. He's greater than I am. Uh, I baptize with water. One is coming who will pour out even his Holy Spirit on you. Uh, in, in other words, this is the one whom the scriptures foretell is coming. And then the very next verse introduces us, having prepared us for the arrival of this God, of God Almighty. You have verse 9. At that time, who came? Jesus. Jesus, that man who walked this earth. Jesus, whom who has many different people offering many different opinions of who he is. And I want you to see what Mark is presenting to his readers here. That Jesus, he's reaffirming what has already been said in verse 1 really, that Jesus is not only the Messiah King, but that everyone's been waiting for. He is the very Son of God. 
And then this is where Mark picks up the pace, taking us through some remarkable scenes in Jesus' life and ministry, uh, his baptism, his testing in the desert, and so on, and just rushes on by them. But he has a main point. He has a, he has a clear intent in doing so. But as we go through it, I want us to see four things together tonight, just briefly. One, the king's coronation. Two, the king's power. Three, the king's claim. And four, the king's call. So first of all, the king's coronation. So Mark tells us that the first thing Jesus does is that he goes to John for baptism. And you might think, well, that's a bit of an odd thing to do. We've just, told, we've just been told that, that John is, in his view, really a nobody uh, compared to this one who is coming. So John is lesser, if you like, than Jesus. You've also been told that John's baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the testimony of the life of Jesus is that he was sinless. That those who threw accusations at him in order to trap him actually had to lie about, make up stuff in order to catch him and have him convicted. So why is the Holy One of God, uh, Jesus Christ, the sinless one, coming to be baptized? Well, I think it's quite simple, really. He is identifying with his people in their baptism. But I think Mark is specifically wanting us to see Jesus' baptism as a king's coronation. A king's coronation where there is both a visible and an, and an uh, audible affirmation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. So you have the visible affirmation. Look with me, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, those of you who are familiar with some of the other gospel accounts will recognize that there's no mention of the conversation that Jesus had with John, no mention of John's reticence in baptizing Jesus, no mention of Jesus praying there. And I think the reason for that is quite simple. I think Mark wants us to be gripped really by what's going on primarily in heaven rather than in the waters. Heaven is being torn open here. And, and what happens? What do we see happens? Well, we see a spirit, the spirit descending on Jesus like a dove. But what does that mean? Well, I think we're supposed to see two things here. One, something new is happening. At the very beginning of the Bible, uh, in the opening chapter of Genesis, you read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the subsequent verses, you read about the Holy Spirit uh, brooding, hovering, if you like, bird-like over the waters uh, in that whole process of creation. And in creation, you see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all operating. Uh, and now it seems that Mark wants us to pick this up and to see that Jesus has really come to recreate, to undo the consequence of the fall, that the second Adam, Jesus, is here to reverse that which the first Adam brought in through his sinful rebellion. To show us that in this one standing now in the waters of the Jordan River, in this one, there is something new that is happening. There is a new creation that's going to be coming about a new creation where this one is truly the king. He is, this is the second thing we're to see in this, he is being crowned. And this is what, if you read through accounts in the Old Testament 
of when a king was anointed. Uh, this is what you saw. They would be filled with the Spirit uh, and would have responsibility to utter the words of God to the people, be God's representative to the people. And I think Mark wants everyone to see this as something of a coronation ceremony where Jesus is visibly anointed and dedicated to this certain work. It's a new beginning. Not only do we have heaven's visible affirmation of Jesus, we have heaven's audible affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah King as well. A loud voice, a voice came from heaven. We see in verse 11, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Uh, This is heaven's affirmation of Jesus as the Messiah King. An incredible affirmation. And we can't miss, again, the Holy Trinity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit on display here again at this very, very important point in Jesus' life and uh, ministry. You have the heavenly, Heavenly Father's voice, the Holy Spirit's descent at the very moment of the Son's baptism. Uh, We have our triune God at work. So right from the very beginning, Mark presents an answer to this question, who is Jesus? We is the King crowned not by any kind of earthly authority uh, crowned identified acknowledged by heaven itself with the father and the spirit declaring and again here's where you see the speed of mark's gospel in no time at all uh, he moves on at once the spirit sent him out as verse 12 tells us and this is where we see the second thing the king's power demonstrated He was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now here we're introduced to this character, Satan, the very enemy of God who lives in opposition to all things of God. And what we see in verse 12 is that the Spirit sends Jesus alone uh, into the wilderness to face Satan. I think verse 13 where Mark mentions a wild beast, it's a reference to Jesus' total isolation. He went somewhere that people don't live. Uh, And and a a detail which tells us that I think Mark is trying to get us to see that Jesus is going out there intentionally to single-handedly overpower and bind someone whom he will later describe in one of his parables as a strong man. And I think what Mark is helping us to see is that with with the coming of this Christ, the coming of the Son of God, is the launching of of God's promised, full, and final counter-offensive against Satan, sin, and death, our great enemy, as well as his. And one of the questions I think that is being begged here is, will he prevail? How is he going to cope in the desert, facing the kind of temptation that the devil would bring his way? Can he stand Where others fell? Well, we think back to Adam again. Adam fell in Eden. Would Jesus Christ, the second Adam, stand? Or you can think back to the Old Testament and the people of Israel, referred to by God himself in Exodus 4.22 as Israel, my firstborn son. So he treated them like a child. Uh, Would the eternal God, son of God, stand firm where they, Israel, fell 
Perhaps a, a reference to the desert here of Deuteronomy 8. Remember how God led you in the desert to test, humble, and know what was in your heart, but they were unfaithful. So Jesus was led where Israel was led, but unlike unfaithful Israel, he is the faithful son of God who will stand. He did not give in to temptation. He did not fall where others fell. The strong man sure was going to be bound, not destroyed, evil defeated, but not yet annihilated. The kingdom of God inaugurated, but not yet brought to full and final completion. That day will come no doubt about it but amazingly wonderfully for us to see that from this isolated desert place a place of temptation the king emerged unscathed the third thing we see then verses 14 to 15 the king's claim John has passed on after John was put in prison we read Jesus went into Galilee, in that northern region, proclaiming the good news of God. What is that good news? Well, it's something that's urgent. The time has come, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is near. So that's his subject, the kingdom of God. And he's telling us that it's near. And then he tells us what is our response to that, or what should be our response to that news that the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. What is this kingdom of God? Uh, it's, it's bounded around in lots of ways uh, by Christians. Uh, but usually whenever we think about a kingdom, we tend to think in geographical terms. A kingdom is a place, a particular land with a well-defined border. Uh, but that's not how we have to understand it here. Rather, the kingdom of God is best understood as, as anywhere and everywhere where a person submits himself to Christ and his rulership. Uh, it's where Christ is king. Uh, the kingdom of God is not so much about where you are, but whose you are. So the kingdom of God refers to God's loving rule over his people. And it's true to say that there is not one square inch in this entire universe that is not his and held together by him but when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God here he refers specifically to God's rule over his own people who become his through this repentance and through this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ I think the apostle Paul helps us understand this in Colossians where he explains what happens when a person becomes a Christian that is they are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ he says for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, rescue, the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus then comes into Galilee saying the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news, Jesus is actually making a stunning claim. The Jews had for hundreds of years been waiting, hoping, praying for the dawning of the kingdom that had been promised through the Old Testament prophets. They knew there would be an anointed king, a Messiah, like one of their former kings, David. But like Isaiah says, he would be a suffering servant. And like Daniel says, he would be a son of man. But they never would have imagined that all three figures would turn out to be the same man. 
So with all of Israel longing for the day when God's rule would be established on earth, as people would finally be vindicated into that very atmosphere of expectancy and hope, drawing on these strands of prophecy together, claiming the kingdom of God is here, essentially, in me. Now that is quite a claim. That is quite a claim. The kingdom of God is making a personal appearance in me. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. That is quite a claim. Now that would have got everyone's attention, no doubt about it. But this, you see, this is good news. This is why this is good news. Not just because the kingdom has come, but that the kingdom has come and that we can be included in it too. How can that be? Well, Jesus mentioned some very clear entry requirements. Repentance and faith. Uh, Did you know that? Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. Maybe you've even attended church for many a year, maybe since you were young. Um, You do know that inclusion in the kingdom of God, uh, where Christ is king, is not automatic. Uh, It's not something that's just yours by virtue of the fact that you were born into a Christian family or even just because you've gone to church for a whole host of years. Uh, It requires a response from all of us, really, if we would have the privilege of being his subjects and being a part of his glorious kingdom. Now, Jesus doesn't necessarily couch it in uh, any special way for us. He's actually just very open. He doesn't hold back, doesn't soften his message. Um, Mark certainly doesn't think that he should omit it and break it to his readers gently. No, Jesus is quite simply asking for you to consider your old life as something that is rebellious and sinful, to turn from that and actually bank your everything on Jesus Christ, the life he lived, the death he died on the cross, and the fact that he was raised again to life three days later, and after that, ascended to the right hand of God to take his rightful place. Repentance unto life, says the Westminster Confession, is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with even grief and hatred of his sin turns from it with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Well put. I wonder how that sounds to you. I mean, if you even if you are here and you're not a Christian, uh, to grieve and hate sin. Uh, this is Jesus' call, really. It's to grieve over and hate some of the things that you actually love like materialistic things, like money, sex, power, reputation, all of these things, when pursued uh, in rebellion with complete disregard for God and his purposes and what he wants for those he has created, that's all of us. We are called to hate and mourn over these things and see the beauty and the wonder of life with God 
and walking in obedience to him. I wonder how that sounds for you. I don't think it's necessarily easy. Uh, the sinful things that we do often hold quite an attraction to them. That's why we do them so often. And that's why that even those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus find at times that as part of this new Christian life, we can feel the pull and the drag of the temptation of some of these old desires. But we are called nonetheless to turn away from these many individual sins by which we offend God's character, uh, by which we break his holy law. We are to turn away from any attempt whatsoever, of course, in those situations to blame shift. Oh, if it wasn't for the fact I was brought up this way, I wouldn't be in this situation. Or, you know, to downpl- downplay what we've done. Oh, surely I'm not that bad. Look at that person. He's a nightmare. I'm much better than he is. No, we can't do any of those things. And there's no way at all that we're going to be able to justify ourselves before God by appealing to our own beliefs or our own good behavior. Even if you have been a good person, you know, you didn't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls who do, or whatever. Even if you didn't do any of those things, your own good life, in your view, is not enough. Do you see why? Because there's no place for the King Jesus. And we need to put our faith and trust in him. So we turn to God in our repentance, having turned away from sin, turn to God, look to him to pardon our sin, to give us a right standing before him, to bring us into close fellowship with him, only through faith in Jesus Christ, nothing else. Meaning that we trust in the person, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Trusting Jesus as God's appointed provision for the forgiveness of these sins that we have committed. Trusting Jesus for this strength and energy and power as we labor through life to affect real change in our lives, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, motives, desires, affections, patterns of relating to God and relating to others so that we might truly love him and love our neighbor as we ought to. See what Jesus is doing here? As he proclaims the nearness of this kingdom. And as he explains these entry requirements of repentance and faith, fundamentally he's inviting you, almost forcing you to choose. You've got to decide. It can't be impressed upon you enough. You must choose whom you will follow, him or the world. And by his counter-offensive against Satan, he shows us really who the king of the world is. So will we choose Jesus, the king of heaven and earth, or will we choose Satan as our king and be ruled by his power and choosing the very things that are opposite to God and his desires? The response to the king, you see, is what makes a difference. That's why there is a call to repentance and faith. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you to think that through, what it means to turn away from your sin and turn to God in faith, believing in Jesus Christ, banking everything on Christ. 
Uh, I would encourage you, if someone brought you, to talk to them about that, to speak to myself or John William at the door. Or if you like, we run courses like this that deal with these kind of questions. There's a Glad You Asked course on just now which deals with some big objections to Christianity. Uh, it's on Tuesday night. Uh, they've got four weeks to go, but you can join them. Uh, why don't you consider this question? What does it mean to turn from sin and turn to God in faith? Can I encourage you to do that? Jesus impressed upon us through Mark's gospel the urgency of this, and I would like to encourage you to consider that too. You can pray to him even right now. I don't even care if you listen to the rest of this sermon. You can confess your sin before him and believe in him if you would like. The wonderful thing about this kingdom is not only are we invited to become a part of it through repentance and faith, uh, we're invited to become followers of the king himself. And this is what we see in the king's call. Verses 16 to 20 outline for us tell us what Jesus did when he uh, inaugurated this kingdom, came preaching this kingdom. He called other people to follow him. Jesus calls people to discipleship, uh, to follow him. And I love what Mark shows us here that really before we can do anything for Christ in terms of service, we must first follow Christ and imitate him. Character is crucial. Becoming like Jesus is crucial for us in our walk if we want to be the ones who take up this kingdom torch, this gospel torch, and hold it out for others as well. Now, Jesus comes and calls uh, these people, uh, Peter, James, John, uh, Andrew, and uh, normally a person approached uh, in this scenario back then, it was approached by a rabbi uh, to, sorry, Normally back then, the person who wanted to follow a certain rabbi would approach the teacher and say, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? But Jesus pretty much turns it on its head here and calls on people to follow him. And the call to follow him is to learn from him. The call to follow him from, for, for these guys and for the others who would call, he would say, watch me imitate me. Let me teach you. Let me show you what it's like to belong to this kingdom. Let me show you what it's like to proclaim this kingdom. And he gives them opportunities to do that. He trains them up. He sends them out and prepares them even to take this gospel to the very nations. Follow me, he says. And that's what they did. I mean, they've just left their stuff. Uh, Yeah, James and John left their dad in the boat. I bet he was a bit disappointed about that uh, to follow Jesus. But you sense the immediacy of this again. They, they heard Jesus call without delay, Mark says. They left their father's everyday in the boat and the hired men and followed him. But notice what he calls them to. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus calls those who follow him those to imitate him to a purpose. He gives them a purpose. They join him, join him in this great endeavor to take this gospel to all nations. And it's quite an incredible thing. I love the fact that he calls uneducated fishermen to carry out his mission to take the gospel to the whole world. I mean, it baffles rationality, really. Um, 
But having conceived this intention, which no one else really seemed to have had before, he gives these guys the commands and teachings to take them to the nations that would then reveal him as Almighty God to all humanity and all through such unsophisticated and common people. It's wonderful to see. It gives me hope. <laughs> and you too, I hope. Because there's no doubt, and get the point in this, there is no doubt that it's not by human strength or resources that the word of Christ comes to prevail with authority and with convicting power in the hearts of many who are so enraptured and so enamored and so love, in love with their sin and at the time hateful towards God to change their lives, to change their very hearts so that their affections are turned from what God hates and turn to God himself in love. It's an incredible scene. There is so much depth, even in these verses, that you could mine and quarry for ages. There would be veins of gold to find in there all night long. But Mark has given us this declaration of this gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, asking of us all the way through, who is this Jesus? What's his identity? Who is he? Who is he to claim this? Who is this man that has heaven being torn open and affirming audibly and visibly, this is my son? No one else has had that. Who is this that with power stands where all other people fall in the face of temptation and sin? Who is this that comes with such boldness and urgency, asking of people who come under the hearing of his words and the hearing of his message, you need to repent and believe the good news or else you can know no part in this kingdom. And the one who calls us to surrender everything and follow him and join him in his mission. I pray that if you're here tonight, you're not a Christian, you would take that on board, that you believe in him. And I pray that if we, all of us who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who are a part of that kingdom now, will not only rejoice in that and appreciate the great grace and the mercy of God that is ours and allowing us to repent of our sin and turn to him in faith and believing in him, but that we would again heed this call to recognize that those whom God calls to be a part of his kingdom, he commissions for the work to take this gospel to the nations. Let that be our purpose as well. Let's pray.